Move Forward Radio is brought to you by ChoosePT.com, the official consumer information website of the American Physical Therapy Association. Find a physical therapist near you at ChoosePT.com. Welcome to Move Forward Radio. I'm Eric Reese. Both Molly Smith and Carl Arabian were pretty new to the profession of physical therapy when they were thrust into a vital but harrowing role that neither of them could have anticipated playing at any point in their career, let alone its near outset. Their hospitals became early epicenters for treatment of patients with COVID-19, and the two physical therapists found themselves on the front lines of the pandemic in the hot spots of Seattle, in Molly's case, and New York City in Carl's. In this episode of Move Forward Radio, the PTs describe the circumstances of their trial by fire, their response as movement experts to both the immediate and ongoing needs of patients in the hospital who are weakened and debilitated by the virus's effects, and the roles of their PT colleagues in the continued rehabilitation and restoration of daily living abilities for COVID survivors long after their discharge from the hospital. Molly and Carl share stories about some of their patients, including one who was emboldened in his fight against the virus by his success much earlier in life surviving the Nazi Holocaust. The PTs also have takeaway messages and advice for listeners based on their expertise and experiences. Here's our conversation with Molly and Carl. So, uh, Molly and Carl, uh, uh, thanks so much for joining us today. The Seattle area was where uh, COVID-19 cases first uh, really tended to explode in the United States, and and then the New York City area followed shortly after that. We're we're fortunate to have... uh, Two PTs here who have uh, who have been uh, active in in both areas. Uh, Molly, you work for a hospital in Seattle, and, and Carl, you work at a hospital uh, right near New York City on the border between uh, the uh, borough of Queens and, and Nassau County on uh, Long Island. So. Let's start by having both of you talk about uh, a little bit uh, sort of where you were and what was going through your head as the pandemic erupted in your respective cities. Uh, so, so, Molly, I want to talk to you first. You weren't that long out of school when COVID-19 hit the Seattle area in, in a big way. There's still a lot we don't know about the virus, uh, yeah, but even less was known back then uh, when Seattle first became a hot spot. And your experience... Uh, with an individual with COVID-19. Your first experience with an individual with COVID-19 came, I believe, in in late March. And I want you to talk about that experience a little bit shortly. But but first, what did you anticipate your role as a physical therapist was going to be with these patients, especially given shortages of personal protective equipment and the need to prioritize doctors and nurses who received that equipment? Um, Sort of what were your initial questions and concerns? At first, there was a lot of panic and confusion in the hospital, um, especially regarding our role in the ICU and the COVID units. Uh, PPE, uh, personal protective equipment, was short, um, and there was a moment of pushback in terms of how vital PTs were. Um, this didn't last very long, though. I think it's like the first week or so of March is when all this kind of exploded, and um, everything was starting to happen, and my boss called an emergency meeting, and all of our staff members came up into this big gym room, and it was the first time they were all, like, stay six feet apart. Like, it was very trying to figure out what was going on, and and my manager got up in front of all of us and and said, this is real. This is a pandemic, and you guys are on the front lines, Um, and I'll just never forget her saying that. It It was very real in that moment. We knew and the hospital knew how vital PTs are in the role of rehabilitation after an ICU stay and also discharge planning. Um, And so it became apparent that we were going to be on the front lines for this. Um, I was concerned about PPE at first. Um, I actually only received my own N95 mask last week. 
Um, while I was down treating in the COVID units, I was wearing a shared PAPR uh, for the majority of the time and wore two surgical masks and a face shield. Those were my initial concerns, and, and um, but it's since not been a concern in terms of PPE in, in Seattle anyway. Well, how, uh, how exposed did you feel uh, not ha- having inadequate PPE all that time? It was scary for a little while there. Um, I think the kind of rules and regulations around it kept changing. They kept saying we could wear a universal mask all day and then put another mask on over and just throw that one away when we left the rooms. And then that got disregarded and you're supposed to throw both of them away. And so I think just the uncertainty around it was, was kind of anxiety provoking at first. And now yeah. I have a N95 and that's what I've been wearing when I'm treating them. And our hospital is actually pretty low on the amount of COVID patients we have anymore. So, so, so one, one N95? Yeah, I keep it in a Tupperware. <laughs> I've seen it before and after, and then uh-huh. I keep it in the Tupperware so that it holds its shape and bringing it to and from, and that's what I was told to do when it was handed and fitted for me, actually only like the end of April. That, uh, is, a, that is a very uh, vital thing to have in Tupperware. Yeah. <laughs> So, so Carl, I, I want to talk with you a little bit about your initial experiences. I, I, I've read that you were actually out of out of town, sort of, when when things were starting to heat up. And when you returned to to work, you you got a call into your boss's office, and, and you actually thought that you might be in trouble. <laughs> but it, yeah. but instead, yeah. the meeting was all about the seriousness of what was going on. Can you kind of take us back to that moment? Sure. And uh, thanks so much for having me, Eric. Um, you know, I'm I'm so fortunate that I have two phenomenal bosses, uh, Dave Marcello and Brent McPherson. Um, I went to Florida March 14th for a memorial service for my uncle who passed away, and I was there for about another week longer, just kind of visiting friends and relaxing and just decompressing from several long months of that of work. Um, and I was just kind of basically out of touch. I made it a point to just disconnect and just kind of reset my mind and then go back to mar- work in March and see what was going to happen. Um, and when I came back to work, I kind of just walked in. They told us we had to put a mask on right away, so I was confused, and then walked in and then my both um Dave and Brand pulled me into the office and said, We need to talk. I'm like, uh oh, here we go. I definitely <laughs> forgot something to do. I know I had to have gotten into trouble somehow. I can't I can't just come back from vacation, everything be perfect. Right. And I saw the look on their faces and I'm like, Yep, their face confirms it. I'm definitely in trouble. And they said, This is really serious, Carl and I'm like, What do you mean? He goes, We're in a war zone. Huh. And I think that moment was when I realized COVID-19 hit New York, and we're about to see something we've never seen before. And yeah. from that moment on, it was it was kind of like game on. It's like, you know, this is what you find up for. You want to work, and you want to help, and you want to make a difference. So um, Dave and Brand and I, we went through step-by-step how to don and doff personal protective equipment. And in the middle of us practicing, I heard over the hospital intercom, cold blue which basically means the patient, you know, it's compromised. There's, there's airway issues and the patient is, needs to be resuscitated. Mm-hmm. And you don't really hear that too often in the hospital. And I think when I, once I heard that, along with the seriousness of the situation, I realized that it's not me that's in trouble. It's everybody else that's in trouble. And now is our time to kind of do what we need to do to, to start working. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I understand that you, you very pretty very quickly found yourself working overnight in, in sort of a makeshift ICU unit that, that was understaffed and overflowing with COVID positive patients. That all sounds very chaotic and, and terrifying. Yeah. Can you can you talk yeah. about that scene and, and what some of your key roles were in that environment? So I quickly realized as I started working each day, 
when you're working with COVID patients that there's so many patients and there's only so many nurses. And that's magnified even more in the ICU. And it wasn't just one ICU unit. It was overflow units. Mm -hmm. Normally, ICU nurse sees one to two patients. They were seeing four critically ill patients at a time. And it wasn't they had time to sit down and document. They were running from patient to patient to patient because every patient was so critically ill. And I quickly realized they need somebody to help them. They need a mobility specialist or somebody that can lend an, an extra hand to help with turning, positioning, maybe even proning them if necessary if, if all their other coworkers are busy. And I said to myself when I reached out to Dave and Brand as well, I said, we need to help them. And if our patient census is low because – we weren't getting as many patient evaluations. I want to work overnight in the ICU. Let me do something and help the, the nurses that are working more than they ever have. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Were, were you actually pl- playing a physical therapy role at that early point as well? Yeah. Um, so the first week I came back from work, I was treating COVID patients at bedside, you know, and it's the standard treatments. You evaluate, you assess, you try to ambulate as best you can. You determine safe discharge planning, you educate, but there's nobody overnight that's there to help. And while right. I wasn't necessarily doing hands-on physical therapy overnight, I was still using the skills that I was, I was taught, I've learned, I've practiced in a high intense, in a, in a more intense and a more critical, critical you know, setting, more right. so than, than bedside. Right. What, uh, um, uh, Carl, what was your PPE situation at that point? Um, you know, thankfully, uh, Northwell Health did a, did a really good job making sure that we were as prepared as we could. Um, I was able to get fitted for a N95 mask, mm-hmm. and I was told I have to hold on to that for anywhere from a full four-day work week or maybe even, maybe even longer, as long as the N95 was not soiled. Um, and I wore that mask every day, all day, and we had, we also had a surgical mask we, we had to put on top of the N95, mm-hmm. and that's how we that's how we worked. We obviously had our gowns as well. Um, we had surgical face shields, um, and then from there, shortages got a a little bit more uh, sparse. But by no means did I ever feel that I'm gonna I'm gonna be at risk to myself because. Um, I'm not adequate, adequately supplied. So I, I just wanted to ask you, how easy or hard is it to, to, to work in the normal manner that you would work with all that gear on? It's definitely more challenging. But at the same time, out of all the things to complain about on a daily work day, especially mm-hmm. during COVID season, I think the last thing that's, I'm, that's going to bother me <laughs> is how poorly I'm breathing through an N95 mask because mm-hmm. I'm looking at these people and they're already struggling to breathe with their mouth open and with supplemental oxygen. So you get used to it. You get used to being uncomfortable because my lack of comfort per se means nothing compared to what it means to get these people home. Right, right. Okay. Now, now, Molly, your first experience with a COVID-19 uh, patient was, was with a woman who'd uh, entered the hospital because she had a, a neurological condition, and then she con- actually contracted the virus there at the hospital. Uh, she needed your help with uh, mobility issues, but she also was dealing with isolation from her family, and, th- and there was a language barrier. Can you talk a little bit about that situation and also sort of an emotional moment that the, the two of you had at one point? Yeah, yeah. She was the very first uh, patient room that I walked into that was COVID positive. Um, 
she had been in the hospital prior to this uh, pandemic. She had a spinal surgery because of she uh, had some nets to the bone. And as a result, she had some uh, lower extremity weakness from that neurologic injury. Um, so prior to COVID, she was receiving um, acute rehab unit, uh, inpatient rehab level of care, and then contracted COVID and ended up in our COVID wings down in the hospital. Mm-hmm. Um, she spoke only Russian, so we had to use a translator. Um, and I can, I can relate to, to Carl's notes there in terms of wearing all this equipment, like dealing with the translators. And it's, it's a lot, but what these patients are dealing with, it's, it's tales in comparison. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we spent many sessions together um, through March and April working on her um, gait and confidence with her gait. We were confined to this COVID room that we no longer had the luxuries of an inpatient rehab um, with her being so fearful to walk, uh, we didn't have like a wheelchair follow that I was the only one allowed in the room. We can't bring our PT aids into these COVID rooms with us. Um, and so we were lacking the equipment, um, but I knew she was capable of progressing her gait and ambulation skills and it was safe to do so. Mm-hmm. Um, again, she spoke only Russian. Um, and so <laughs> to like motivate her, try and relate on some level, I began to learn to count in Russian to encourage and motivate her the number of times she was walking across this like five foot spam room. Um, mm-hmm. Five in Russian is piat. Um, and as she finished her like fifth uh, five foot walk repetition in the room, like I was chanting piat, piat, and like trying to make it any sort of small amount of fun in there for her. Um, and I remember sitting back down and her windows faced the skyline of Seattle. And I just remember thinking I was so thankful she had this big, beautiful window in this room that she'd been confined to for at least three weeks now. Um, At this point, only able to talk to her family on the phone. Um, Families are not allowed in the hospital, and so visitors only have the phone to communicate with their families. Um, And she sits there at the end of our session, and she begins to cry. Um, I quickly asked the translator to translate why she's crying, and I just remember this being just a really emotional moment because I grabbed her hand through my double-gloved hand, like I'm wearing this giant tapper thing that she can't even see my, my, she can barely see my eyes and my face. And I just think how terrifying I must look to her in this spacesuit looking thing. Um, mm-hmm. And I wait for the translator uh, to relay to me in English why she was crying. There's always a slight delay with internet connection and whatnot. Um, and I hear back in English that these are happy tears. I'm finally able to see the light at the end of a very long tunnel as I begin to walk more. And she thanked me. Um, and I got, I got close with that patient. I worked with her through most of March and April. Because yeah. um, to get out of the hospital, too, you have to test negative twice um, to mm-hmm. go to a skilled nursing facility or some sort of post-acute care. And so we're finding patients are continuing to test positive for long periods of time. So it's, it can be a long time that they're in there. Sure, um, sure. Is that, yeah. is that patient past the worst of it now? Yeah, yeah. She's um, since left the hospital. Wow. Well, that's great. Yeah. Um I guess if I if I have the floor, I think uh, another unique perspective of the hospital I'm working at is primarily for neurologic. Uh, we get a lot of strokes, um, a lot of spine surgeries. And so what happened at the beginning of this is we had all these patients that were receiving inpatient level of care for this gentleman that I'm thinking of had, had a stroke. And um, then he contracted, just like my other patient, the virus within the hospital. Um, so now on top of trying to facilitate um, inpatient rehab level of care, which is three hours of intensive therapy a day, um, which didn't really happen. There was a lot of conversation around how we were going to maintain that. and it, it didn't quite happen that way, but um, they're down in these COVID units. And um, I was seeing this one gentleman and, and trying to do the best that I could to reach some sort of um, 
stroke rehab for him on top of recovering for this, from this virus. And he ended up not being one of the patients that wasn't um, critically ill from the virus, but had the virus, but still had a stroke. Um, and so trying to be creative in these rooms that I can't bring anything into because of COVID. Um, I don't have any access to besides bed, the bed, the chair, um, and myself. It, that, that's been a challenge, um, an interesting one and a fun one to kind of um, weave, weave through trying to create um, rehab with very limited resources in these rooms. Well, I'm sure in PT school they try as best they can to teach you problem-solving skills, but uh, th that's not exactly something that they teach you in PT school. This problem specifically didn't come up through school. <laughs> no. <laughs> Suffice it to say. A quick break to encourage you to move. Physical activity is associated with a reduced risk of chronic disease, not to mention improved bone health, cognitive function, weight control, and overall quality of life. Simply put, more movement is the gateway to better health. Need some help to get going? Physical therapists are movement experts who use exercise, hands-on care, and patient education to help you meet your goals. You can contact a PT directly for an evaluation. Learn more and find a physical therapist near you at choosept.com. So, um, Carl, I, w I want to talk with, with you a little bit about some of your experiences. Um, regardless of the severity of symptoms and individual uh, treatment needs, COVID-19 patients with whom you work have a big issue in common. They're, they're all deconditioned from having spent days or in some cases even weeks in a hospital bed. Um, addressing that as a physical therapist, uh, uh, it's in their wheelhouse as far as being a movement expert, but, but there are a lot of different presentations. So can you talk about some of the individual patients with whom you've worked and the types of issues you've helped them address? Uh, matter of fact, I understand you even had a Holocaust survivor. Yeah. Um, I think one of my favorite lessons that I've learned in physical therapy school was N equals one. And what that basically means is you can have two people with the same diagnosis but they're not going to present the same way. So you need to specialize and, and tailor your treatments to them, their personal needs, and what their goals are. And like, like you said as well, so I've seen patients that are so completely debilitated, laying down to sitting up is exhausting, and they're unable to tolerate sitting up for long periods of time. They have to lay back down. And then there's other individuals that, you know, lay down, they sit up, they wait a minute, and they're able to walk, and they do pretty okay. Um, so it goes back to kind of the basic fundamentals. And what, what we also learned in physical therapy school is the, the best do the basics well. So if you're able to recognize what this person specifically needs to get them better, we're going to focus on those little details to make them accomplish their goal so they can go home. And it kind of go, circles back right away to um, this individual that I worked with. And I remember seeing him and he didn't look too great. But I kind of, there's something about him that I really wanted to kind of ask him more questions about. I get to know him, and he, he said to me, he goes, when he was, he was a young child, he was working, in, he was in the underground army in Germany, and he was blowing up trains to fight for the resistance against the Nazi regime. And he looked at me, he goes, Carl, I think I'm going to die from this. And I looked at him and said, you're not going to die today. And, he, you know, the conversations kind of continued. He said, Hitler mm -hmm. tried to kill me, but he won't do that. So I think that everybody has a story, and you want to work. You want to work hard because these people are these people are people. They have beautiful right. stories, and you want to do what you can do to make them better. Mm -hmm. And you know when you kind of can connect similar to how Molly, similar to Molly's story as well. It's about the people, and connecting with them, making them feel confident, helping them reach their goals. That's the biggest thing we can do. 
I can get, I can share with you another pretty neat story. Okay. I had a, a, a patient evaluation in one of the ICU units, and you know I did my chart review and I noticed the patient was a relatively uh, younger age male, and I was as I was going through his chart, I noticed that he was he's on a ventilator since March, and he was finally extubated, and it was time for me to assess. And the ICU unit that I went into was one of the makeshift units where they have the staffing, but it doesn't look like a real ICU. It almost looks like just a big room with a bunch of very critically ill patients. And you could see, in, you could see how stressed the nurses were because it's not a comfortable place to be, but it's mm-hmm. the best place for them to be. Mm-hmm. And I saw the patient, and I'm assessing, I'm kind of looking at him. I'm like, kind of following commands. He's kind of with it. I, can, I want to see if I can get him to dangle. I'm going to try it. Let me get a victory today. And one thing leads to another, I'm able to dangle him, and I have him sitting up. And all the nurses start clapping and cheering because this was the first time that they saw a patient on a vent for so long sit up. Um, we were able to get his uh, girlfriend on FaceTime, and the first words that he mumbled when he saw his girlfriend's face was, I love you. Wow. And that was such a, such a touching experience for me uh, because that was kind of the victories that we won. It's the, the family members aren't there. They're only able to connect with their loved ones through FaceTime. And to have this, this gentleman sit up for the first time in months, and the first words that he mumbles were, I love you, it's stories like that that kind of make you want to keep fighting and keep working because there's so many more people out there like him, and there's so many people that need to go home to their loved ones. I just wanted to go back to one thing you said. Did you say you dangled him? Dangled, yeah. <laughs> um, I, don't, I, I didn't know what that meant. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, so dangle is, I guess it's a, it's a word that we use in physical therapy. It's where you sit at the edge of the bed, but your feet don't touch the ground. So okay. you're sitting up, supported with, with physical therapists and with nurses and with staff. And Got it. just kind of assessing as you go. I've been working for APJ yeah. for 20 years, but somehow I never encountered that term before. Oh, geez. I guess it may- Oh, funny. <laughs> we use it. We use it all the time, too. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Because if they're in a good frame of mind, it's actually, I mean, it's medically proven that it's beneficial to, sure. to your recovery. Sure. sure. And if you think about it, too, if these people aren't feeling well and you come in and you don't make them feel comfortable right away, why mm-hmm. are they going to do anything for you? So if you make them feel comfortable and, and let them know that it's okay to be afraid, but we're here to help you. We're not going to hurt you. Right. And right. our goals are the same as their goals to get them better. Mm-hmm. There's some wonderful things that can happen from that. And, and they have to trust you when you say that uh, that, that uh, there is a reason for this, that there, it is not hopeless. Right, right. And I think at the same time, too, a lot of them, when they're in the hospital beds, they'll have the news on, and they'll see the numbers, and they'll see the statistics. And technically, they're a statistic. But, that's, but their number can go one of two ways. You know, right. and let's, let's, let's hope and pray that they only go in the positive direction. And if you... Make them know that they could do it. They can be the survivors. They're going to want to do whatever they can for you as well and for their family. Mm-hmm. Uh, Molly, um, I, I want to talk with you about one of your patients in particular. As, as we've already noted, Seattle, Seattle was really the first area in the U.S. that was very hard hit from, uh, from COVID-19. Mm-hmm. And one of, your, one of your patients or one of the people with whom you worked was the first, one of the first physicians anywhere to, to contract uh, COVID-19 in the United States. And he had a pretty severe case. He, uh, as I understand it, he was in the ICU for more than a month. And in fact, he would have died without uh, having the help of a supreme, of a, 
rather an extreme form of life support that's called an ECMO, which stands for an extracorporeal membrane oxygenation uh, device. Mm-hmm. Um, I've heard that you became involved with his care when you were approached about getting him a mechanical lift, but you responded that what he really needed was physical therapy. So, so can you talk about him and your work with him? Yeah, yeah. He he also had a special story. Um, I was down in the, to kind of reiterate, I was down in that COVID unit and RN approached me about getting a mechanical lift. That's a, that's a, a machine that lifts the patient from the bed to the chair that, and so they don't have to use muscles to, to get upright. Um, I quickly looked to see if this patient, if they had PT orders, and I find that he didn't, and he was no longer intubated, and I thought um, PT needs to get in there, I need to get in there and evaluate this patient and get him moving um, I also saw his like his age, knowing he was 45. Um, I read his past medical history and knowing that he was um, a physician prior to being here, and he was on the front lines of treating this COVID before we knew what was happening. And I met him laying in bed. Um, his voice was barely audible. Um, uh, having been intubated and on the ECMO, ECMO, we call it, for the past month, he was very, very weak. Um, sitting on the edge of the bed was hard work and difficult on his body to compensate for that change in position. Um, I was able to progress that first session um, towards a stand since his vitals were stable. We're constantly monitoring his ability to tolerate this exercise, um, but push him nonetheless. Um, At that point in the game, he needed two-person assist, two people on either side of him to stand for a total of 45 seconds that day. We had his, his wife on FaceTime across the room, and we were shooting for 45 seconds due to his birthday being 45 that day. Um, it was huge for him to stand for the first time in about a month, um, but that was his max to that day that he was mm-hmm. able to tolerate. Um, mm-hmm. He needed further balance training, gait training, posture training, transfer training. Um, he couldn't hold a toothbrush that day, so occupational therapy is also huge in helping with fine motor control training. Um, he was making strides, and I do know um, he's been in, in stories in the news that he is making a, a good recovery, but has a long way to go in his rehabilitation. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and it, actually, you, you've offered me a good segue there because I, I wanted mm-hmm. to talk uh, talk about that recovery process. And, and I want to talk to you a little bit now uh, again, Carl. Um, uh, patients like the doctor with whom Molly worked and many of the COVID-19 patients who you've helped have rehabilitation needs that, that don't end when they leave the hospital. Um, some of these individuals are, are not going directly to rehabilitation facilities, but rather straight home when they have family support. So, can you talk about the ways in which you and, and really all PTs who work in acute care settings prepare people with debilitated bodies for, for life after the hospital and the kinds of discharge instructions or advice that you give to caregivers and patients who will need to continue to work at home toward building their strength? Sure. And I think, I think it, it goes back to basic fundamentals that we do every day in an acute care setting, and it's patient education and safety. Mm-hmm. And when you're working with that patient, your goals are to try to make sure that patient understands what they're able to do and what they are not ready to do, but will be able to eventually be able to accomplish. And, you know, teaching them that when there's a certain way to get out of bed, there's a certain way to stand to prevent any potential risk for falls. And if you're, when you, when you work with those individuals, you want to make sure that they understand that as well, because it goes back to when they're ready to go home, you don't want to see them again. And, that, and, you know, if you do, unfortunately, they're most likely back in the hospital, and that's the opposite of what we're trying to accomplish. So it's about understanding that, okay, you've made it out of, you made it out of the most difficult part, your home. But that doesn't mean that you're ready to return back to 
the life you were living mm-hmm. before you came to the hospital, but you still need to work, you still need to try, you still need to do. And they're able to do that if they understand their own body's limitations and they don't allow themselves to find themselves sitting in a chair all day long because they're afraid to walk to the kitchen to get something to eat. You know, it goes back to just, you know, communi- communicating with the home health physical therapy and other services as well that they might need to make sure that the patient is still trying to be pushed, but safely pushed so they can return back to, to their daily lives the way they once lived. Um, uh, Molly, some, some patients, uh, especially those who have been on a ve- uh, ventilator for, for days or, or weeks, uh, the role of your PT colleagues on the other side in home health and outpatient settings, uh, those are going to be vital, as, as, as Carl alluded to, for, um, for, for patients to be able to, uh, to get back anywhere near to where they were. So can you share a little bit about all that and, and, and talk about what, in general, listeners should know about um, survivors of a condition called ARDS, which is acute respiratory distress syndrome, and, and sort of what their long-term needs are going to be? Yeah, and I can, Carl, right off of everything that Carl's just said, um, patients who survive ARDS are at risk for physical and neuropsychological complications of the lung itself, multi-organ failure, and ICU-acquired weakness, a term we've, we've thrown around a couple times now, um, and the deficits that persist from surviving the ARDS are, are numerous and comp- um, comprise of a long list of physical, mental, and emotional issues affecting their quality of life and activities of, of daily living. Um, in fact, I was doing some reading on, on ARDS. I got curious when, when I was looking all this up, and it, um, ARDS can result in reduced health-related quality of life, this um, outcome measure that we use for up to five years after discharge. And so that's why these home health and outpatient settings have been vital in the past with just ICU-acquired weakness and are going to be even more vital going forward after as the curves of this pandemic um, continue. And I always come back to, and this, this is kind of what Carl said too, come back to the ICF model that we use. Um, there's a health condition, the acute respiratory distress syndrome, syndrome that isn't new by any means. Um, PTs have been treating this in, in the ICU, and it, it, it translates forward into um, home health and outpatients um, being responsible for identifying the impairments, um, like those ICU-acquired weakness, resulting mm-hmm. in limb and lung muscle weakness and activity intolerances, and then aiding the return of these patients to their activities and participations in their, in their life that help with their quality of life. And so I believe that the interventions should come back to the basics, just like Carl said, improving functional mobility. And with specifics to ours, uh, reducing the work of breathing, improving respiratory function, and then with weakness, addressing that fall risk and those balance impairments from, from weaknesses to keep them from having a readmit to the hospital. I just want to jump in and just say, Molly, I sure. couldn't agree more. And I think that, mm-hmm. you know, we tend to forget about the about the concepts like that, but it's so multifactorial, and it goes back to like mm-hmm. like you said, their their physical impairments, their their psychosocial impairments, their ideal impairments, and their cognitive impairments. When when we're yeah. working with them in acute care, that's the first chance that we get to make sure that we can identify some of those factors, address it right away, and put them in a position that they're going to be successful moving forward. Mm-hmm. Yes. I, I couldn't agree more, and I think it's, it's really cool as a profession that we get to address the whole person in that way and mm-hmm. see the whole picture yep. and work as a team yep. with other healthcare professionals and do our best in that in that world. But but as you as you've indicated, uh, this this isn't uh, PT's first uh, first rodeo with with ARDS. This is this is something that PTs are trained to, especially acute care PTs are trained to work with. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
You need to think about it too. Like just because we don't know enough about COVID-19 doesn't mean we're not capable of using the current literature that we have right. to recognize that some of the, their impairments from COVID can be related to things we are familiar with. And then developing that plan that's evidence-based and proven to be effective. Right. Right. It's, it's, it's called the, the novel coronavirus, but not everything about it is novel. <laughs> nice. Yeah, no, well said. No, well, yeah. Said. well said, yeah. So uh, uh, I have a question for both of you, um, uh, and this is, this is more personal. I'm, I know that uh, you've experienced, I'm sure you've experienced a lot of exhaustion. Uh, you, you've, uh, you've gone through the risks of contracting the virus yourself and passing it along to your, your loved ones. Uh, and it's all got to be a lot to, to play on your mind. And, and you're in essential health roles that requires you to, to, to stay as healthy as, and strong as you can in order to be able to serve people. So uh, I want to ask both of you, how, how are you holding up uh, under, under the, the strains that you've been facing? And, and how hard is it to, to kind of maintain your, your, your mental and uh, emotional and physical health? Who wants to go first? <laughs> you take it, Molly. Go ahead. Go. Okay. Um, no, you take yeah, it. Yeah, I'm, <laughs> I'm, doing, I'm doing okay. Um, I'm a big runner, so thankfully running has still been okay to do outside of work. And Seattle's had uh, a surprisingly very sunny spring, so it's been nice to get some sun. Um, uh, my manager and coworkers and support at the hospital have been amazing um, through this time period, um, having meetings every day, talking to us, communicating with us, uh, making sure we feel safe and um, heard. Um, so that's been wonderful. Um, biggest thing is probably not being able to visit my parents back in Montana because of working in the hospital and being um, exposed to a bunch of people and it's not safe for me to go home to my parents. That is, that has hit hard a little bit. Um, but other than that, I'm, I'm doing okay. Yeah. And how about you, Carl? Uh, yeah. So I, when, I guess like, you know, beginning of April when things were first getting pretty bad, I struggled a lot. Um, I definitely had my vulnerable moments where I was really, really scared and really upset. And I, quite frankly, I wasn't doing too well. But I'm so fortunate that I have such a great support group. Um, Dave and Brandt, my uh, director of physical therapy, Dr. Cheryl Hall, um, my favorite professor from school, Dr. Terry Ingenito, as well as some of my family and friends. That you know, the, the support group that I have is, has helped me kind of push a little bit harder and to focus on, focus on the people. And you know, you, there's a time where you can think about yourself, and there's a time where you have to fight for the people that don't have their support group out there, at, right in front of them to, uh, to fight for them as well. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I want to work hard for them. And at the same time, when I do have some free time, I love to go out fishing. And then I have uh, some great friends as well that I'll go fishing with and just to kind of get some fresh air, try to try to get something and we'll see what happens. Right. Um, Molly, is there is there takeaway from your experiences with COVID-19 for our listeners? I'm, I'm thinking of pretty much everything from prevention, the types of things we all could be doing now to reduce our risk of severe uh, symptoms should we contract the coronavirus, uh, to the places where you see hope in this in this very frightening time for everybody. Um, yeah, yeah. For me, um, through this, I think I've been able to, to see all the healthcare workers in the hospital come together to form a team full of dedication and love for each patient in the hospital, as, as we've we've touched on. I have been emotionally touched by the fact that, so again, like I mentioned, families cannot come into the hospital. So we are the support system besides families, people being able to talk on the phone. We're the support system in the hospital for these patients. And so I, 
I watch everybody around me and myself included go into these rooms um, knowing that we would want the most for them. If they were my family member, I would be devastated not to be there for them. So I go in with all the love and support I can, seeing each individual for who they are and trying to create a a supportive environment for them to get better and and love them in in any way that we can. Um, So there's that silver lining of hope that humans come through and, and help each other through this very unprecedented time. Mm-hmm. What about the other part of my question, which was the, the kinds of things we all can be doing now to, to reduce our risk of severe symptoms if, if we oh, should get yeah. the virus? Um, I mean, everything that's been in the news in terms of washing your hands, um, I think wearing a mask when you go to the grocery store, trying to social distance still, um, doing your best to just stay healthy in and of yourself, eating good, sleeping good, drinking water, getting the activity and moving, um, trying to connect through different um, tele things like Skyping or FaceTime or Zooming family members and friends, um, staying in communication that way. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's really important for your mental health because as we've talked about, it, it affects all parts of us as a human during this pandemic. And so just trying to stay connected, really. Cool. Right, right. Um, Carl, what kinds of things uh, w- would you like to uh, to convey to listeners to consider based on your experiences and, and your training about the best ways to uh, to go about trying to, to face the uncertain times ahead from both a physical standpoint and a, and sort of a where your mind is, where your where your where your mindset is? Sure. So I think it comes back to um, we've gone this far being uncomfortable, and we've we've made so much progress with you know individuals at home following the guidelines you know, doing, doing the basics. And it comes back to that. We're not there yet, but we're almost there. And if you keep washing your hands, like Molly said, you, you wear your mask when you're on public and you maintain your own physical and mental, emotional health that us healthcare workers, we could do our job a little bit better. And, you know, it's about being patient, being understanding. And I'm sure this is very challenging for so many different people, but we need to keep doing what we're doing because what we're doing is working. And while it's not as fast as we'd like it to be, we see, we're seeing progress. And it goes back to what we can do today to help tomorrow be a better day. Mm-hmm. How, how do you both feel about the fact that so many areas of the country are starting to, uh, to uh, uh, open back up already? Uh, too soon or okay with appropriate safeguards? Or, or how do you feel about it? You first, um, I'm yeah, it's it's nerve wracking. Um, I I think when I think back to when this all broke out, the hospital was was pretty chaotic, and I I think I I I, re- I could relate to Carl when he said you know he wasn't doing real well at the very beginning of this because I yeah I wasn't either. I think I've come to a place where I'm doing okay. Two months later, it's now the beginning of May, but if that all starts to surge again and our hospitals like drop their census and everything goes back into lockdown, I think it's nerve wracking, but. I'm trying to trust the system, trust the people um, that are making these decisions and right. do my part in, right. in all of this. Carl? Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I don't know. I, do, I don't have an answer. You, you, mm-hmm. you know, you, you would like to see that, you know, as states open up their, you know, hospital, hospital census remains similar to where it was. It would be devastating if they open up and you have a flood of more COVID positive patients entering the hospital. So, you know, you could see both sides because you want people to go back to their normal lives. It's, sure. It's, it's so difficult for them, you know. You know, think about bartenders, restaurant workers, teachers that aren't able to do what they, what they love to do because right. the world got put on pause. So you want them to get back to their lives. But at the same time, we don't want to see more of what we've seen because this is devastating. We want to 
be able to open up and not have to worry about, well, tomorrow we might have the next, next outbreak again. Right. So if anybody should be tempted to say this isn't, this isn't necessarily that big a deal, but both of you are, are sort of living proof that, <laughs> to counter that. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it can't get much more stark than that. So, uh, Molly Smith, uh, Carl Arabian, uh, thank you so much for joining us on Move Forward Radio. Uh, we've really appreciated your sharing your insights and experiences with our audience. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me on here. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to Move Forward Radio. Insight from our guests is for informational purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for individual treatment by a medical professional. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Or find previous episodes at ChoosePT.com, the official consumer information website of the American Physical Therapy Association. Find a physical therapist near you at ChoosePT.com.